Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Something comes out of people when you put them in front of the crane claw in the arcade. Y'all know the crane claw? People are normal until you give them some quarters and put them in front of the crane claw. And uh, you, know, you know how the crane claw works. You put in a couple quarters, maybe you put in a dollar, and there's that joystick, and you move the joystick, and the crane claw goes over all those little prizes, and then you press the button. And once you press the button, you're no longer in control. The crane claw goes down and tries to grasp something there, some little prize. And that's when people get crazy. You'll see people like, balancing on one leg, like somehow that controls the crane claw, or they'll bang on the glass, like, come on, come on, come on. And then the crane claw goes down, and it always gets its hand on something, but it, it never quite gets it in its grasp. So I've, I've very rarely seen someone win the crane claw. In fact, when I play the crane claw, I don't become myself. I'm like, come on, kids, daddy needs some more quarters. Pump them out here, because I want to win something. In fact, there, there's one story that always gets me when I think about the crane claw. It's about this little boy named Mason, and he was at a restaurant with his parents, and, um, and his parents were like, yeah, go play the crane claw, and he couldn't win, so rather than getting more quarters, he figured out a way to climb into the, the game. So his parents come over, and there he is in the game, and uh, they had to call the firemen to come and get him out. Um, but but I, think, um, I think there's really a spiritual metaphor of the crane claw when it comes to us, when it comes to our longings and our desires, and even under those longings and desires when it comes to our, our spiritual thirst. There's something in us that, it's almost like there's something on the other side of that glass, and we are controlling the joysticks in our life. We, we see that thing, and we're like, I've got to have it. If I can just have that one thing. But the funny thing, just like the crane claw, the, the crane claw, you think that you have the thing there, but really that machine has you because you're like, I got to keep playing. I think it's the same way in life often with our own spiritual thirst. Because of our spiritual thirst, we pursue careers and we pursue people. We pursue status and power and pleasure. And we think, if I just can get my claws on those things, then life will be meaningful and wonderful. Not realizing that those things really have us. They really have us. I, I think the crane claw is really a metaphor for our own spiritual thirst. Because we're always thinking, if I can just get that thing, if I can just get the career I want. It's right there if I can just manipulate and get it. That, that person, I've got to have a relationship with that person or, or that status or that acceptance from that person of power or, or that place. I've got, to, I've got to own that place. If I can just do that. And then we get so driven. We get so driven. We're like the people banging on the glass at the crane claw. We get so driven to prove something to someone else or to get our hands on a safe and controlled and comfortable life. or we, we are driven to make ourselves acceptable that we just keep going back and pumping quarters in. And before you know it, our whole life direction is like banging on the glass, trying to get that thing that we think will make life happen, that thing on the other side of the glass. And at that point, 
our spiritual thirst has played out so much that while we think we're going to get it, it really has us. What if behind all that grasping for those things in life, what if, what if behind all those repetitively going after those things, just like pumping quarters in the machine, what if behind all that is a deep spiritual thirst that you and I have that only God can satisfy? What if behind all those things is a spiritual thirst that when we pursue without God, they just make us thirstier? In our story today, we're in John chapter 4. It's on page 1640 of the Bibles in the back. And we encounter Jesus encountering a woman who has been pumping quarters into a machine all her life to try and get something on the other side of the glass. But when Jesus sees her, he sees someone who is really spiritually thirsty. And he's going to disorient her in order that she can be reoriented on who he is and therefore have her entire life renovated by him. She'll get her spiritual thirst quenched. You're familiar probably with the, the phrase, the story of the woman at the well. John chapter four, verse three starts off in this story. And it says that Jesus left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone in the town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, Jesus was in Judea, which is the region where the Jewish people were, but he had gone to another region called Samaria. You can see it on the map where he's traveling north. Judea is on the bottom, Samaria is there in the middle, and he's at a historic place in Samaria called Mount Gerizim. Now, Jewish people and Samaritan people did not like each other. And the reason was is because the Jewish people considered the Samaritan people as sort of Jewish half-breeds. Due to their story, uh, other people had come in and wed and had children, and therefore the, the Samaritans were not full-blooded Jews. And they didn't get along with the Jews. In fact, they didn't want to go worship at the temple in Jerusalem so they created their own site of worship there at Mount Gerizim, where we think Jesus is actually meeting this Samaritan woman. Now they're at a historic Jewish site. It's, it's the well of Jacob. And here Jesus, the son of God, shows his humanity that he needs a, a chance to rest and he needs some water. And he asks this Samaritan woman for help. And she's shocked because Jews don't talk to Samaritans. But not only that, Men didn't talk to women in that culture. It was kind of seen as scandalous, especially if they were alone. So here we have Jesus breaking two social rules. He's talking to a woman who's not a Jew, who's a Samaritan, but then he's talking to a woman. And for some reason, John tells us that it was noon and she was alone. 
which is very interesting because if you're going to gather water in a desert culture, you surely wouldn't want to go at the hottest part of the day. And women would often go together because it was a social event. So here you have a woman who's going at an odd time and she's going by herself. So there's something about this woman that's different. There's something about her that's off. But when Jesus sees her, he sees a woman who is spiritually thirsty. He sees a woman who needs her spiritual thirst quenched. And he's going to disorient her in order that he can be the one who quenches her thirst. In verse 10, it says, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well to drink from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Now, I want you to notice something that Jesus said. If you would ask, he would give you this living water. How often in life are we given something for free? So often in our life, we pursue that career. We pursue that person. We pursue people-pleasing. We pursue that status. And we have to chase after it in order to be spiritually fulfilled. But here Jesus is saying to this woman, I have something that I will give to you. And it's living water. Now, now the word living water meant several different things. It was a spiritual metaphor in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, living water meant Um, It could mean a cleansing of sin, like a cleansing by water so that there would be forgiveness. And it could also mean that the life of God would flow through your soul and you would come to new life. But in that desert culture, it also meant like a running stream. Oftentimes, if you had water that was just sitting, it would spoil or sour or you know, a dead animal might fall in it or bacteria might grow in it. But if you had living water, you knew that was fresh and you could drink it and it would provide life. So she's not quite sure what Jesus means. And she says, uh, this living water, I would like some of that. But she thinks he means H2O. She doesn't think he means spiritual life. And she says, I, I know this well, right? I know this place. Um, what you're talking about is not here. Verse 13, Jesus goes on and Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this water, this well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now there it is, it's the give. Jesus has something that he's willing to just give away. And it's a spiritual metaphor around water. And somehow this water that Jesus gives produces new life. Now, when it says eternal life, it certainly means eternity with God. We talk about like going to heaven when you die. It doesn't mean less than that, but it means much more than that. It's not just about us going to a place when we die Uh, but rather God infiltrating the now and coming and renewing our hearts and bringing new life to us now. It's about heaven coming to earth and living inside of us through God's Holy Spirit. In other words, 
God himself, the source, comes to live in us in order that our thirst might be quenched. In verse 15, the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. She still doesn't get it. She still doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. Um, She's not necessarily talking about, give me this water so I'll have less chores to do. What she's talking about is that well and being there by herself and being there at noon represents something about her life that is very broken. And she doesn't want to do it anymore. She, She doesn't want to come there at noon alone. And she does that because she's not just off. She's kind of a scandalous woman. There's something very fractured about her life. There's something very fractured about her identity. And so when she says to Jesus, give me water so I won't have to come back here, she still doesn't really get what Jesus is offering her. And I find that often you and I don't as either. We come to Jesus and we're like, look, fix the mess in my life. Ease my pain. And those are great things to ask Jesus, but he even wants to go deeper than that. This woman is still oriented to the hole in the ground. She hasn't yet seen the hole in her soul. She hasn't yet seen her spiritual thirst. In verse 16, Jesus disorients her. Go, call your husband. He told her, and come back here. Verse 17, she says, I don't have a husband, she answered. Jesus says, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman seems to be on her sixth man. She's had five previous, and and we don't really know her story. There's a couple of things that could be going on. One is that she could have married man number one, and then man number one decided to divorce her. Then she moved on to man number two, man number two decided to divorce her, and on and on and on until she's on the sixth man. Or it could just be that she kind of gets around. It's more of a scandal on her than her be treated badly. We, we, We don't know but we know that marriage has not really been an anchor for her. It's been something that's caused fracture in her life, which is why she's at the well in the hottest part of the day and why she's there alone. Other women probably don't want to be around her. She's that girl in the community. It's too messy, too fractured, too broken. And yet when Jesus looks at her, he sees spiritual thirst. He sees her broken life, yet he wants her to see her spiritual thirst so he can quench that thirst. It's interesting how she responds to the question though. He says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband, which is true, but it's not the whole truth, right? It's a half truth. I find it so easy in my own heart, and maybe you find this true, that it's so easy to cover up our deeper spiritual issues with half-truths that we try to tell Jesus. But he knows. He knows the whole truth. We might fool ourselves, but we don't fool him. You know, we look at our life and we go, Jesus, they just hurt me so badly, I can't forgive. And Jesus reminds us, yeah, but you're grasping on to bitterness. Uh, We say, hey, I just need a little more money. And maybe that's true, but Jesus might remind us, but that's what you said last year and the year before 
and the year before, and now your whole life is about getting money. We might say, hey, it's really fine because we love each other, Jesus, it's okay. And Jesus might ask us, do I hear a little fear in your voice? Because there is no fear in love. We, we might tell ourselves the half-truth that it's okay to be partial to certain Christians. Like it's okay to treat one group of Christians better than another, but Jesus might see right through that and remind us, listen, you're holding on to an identity that's deeper than your identity in me. See, we can tell Jesus half-truths about our spiritual thirst, but he sees right through it. He knows exactly what's going on. In verse 19, the woman tries another strategy. She tries to change the topic. She says, sir, I see that you are a prophet. In other words, she knows he can see right through her. She, uh, she says, um, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So now she's changing the topic off of her sexual history. She says, let's talk about a theology of worship. She brings up the difference in their sites of worship. Because they did not get along, they had different places where they worshiped. You can put up the map again. You'll see there in Samaria, Mount Gerizim was where the Samaritans had their temple. In Judea and Jerusalem was where the temple mount was. And she brings up this dispute between them over what was the proper place to be worshiping. Not only that, but the Samaritans and the Jews had a difference on what made up the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, there's several different books. If you can do the next slide, there's the, the book of Torah, which is the first five books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But then there's also the prophets and the writings. And the Samaritans said, we only believe the God of Torah. We reject the prophets. We reject the writings. Where the Jews said, no, 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 no. God is the God of Torah, God of the prophets, God of the writings. We accept the whole Old Testament. So she's getting into this dispute with Jesus about where worship should be and about what they believe about God. She's trying to change the topic. So Jesus goes there with her for a minute. For a minute. In verse 21, Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus is saying, listen, actually here, the Jews are right. Uh, all of the Old Testament is a representation of who God is. You cannot just take five books. And in fact, the right place to worship God is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's the place he sanctioned. And in fact, we know this because the Messiah is going to come from the Jewish people. But, Jesus says, a day is coming when it won't be about the place where you worship God, but the Spirit of God coming to live in you. It's not going to be about going to where God lives, but rather God living in you. And then he says this in verse 23, an hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Two times he tells her, God wants to be worshiped in spirit. God wants to be worshiped in truth. And what he's talking about there is the new birth. 
He's talking about how God will come to live in the souls of his people so that it doesn't matter where they gather. They're not going to the house of God to meet, but rather they are the house of God that meets together. God is spirit and he must be worshiped in spirit, but he also must be worshiped in truth. This is Jesus's way of saying you can't reject half of the Old Testament. God is who he is and you must let his word represent him. Otherwise, you are making God up as you go. God is spirit and he wants you to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, this feels like a little bit of a sidebar, doesn't it? Like, why are we talking about this theology of worship here? Because spiritual thirst really is all about worship. Spiritual thirst is really about what we build our lives around, what we see as the source of everything. The only thing that can quench our spiritual thirst is worship. And I'm not talking about the 30 minutes that we spend here singing, but living a life where everything revolves around God, where he becomes our source. When, when we are living our life to get safety, when we're banging on the glass, pumping cordage and pursuing safety, we remember that God, the God we worship is our protector. When we fear rejection, or we fear insignificance. We remember that through Jesus Christ, the God we worship accepts us and is completely focused on us and loves us. When we wanna live our lives appearing to be successful because we think that if we pretend we get it together, that'll quench our spiritual thirst, we're reminded that the God we worship sees our mess and has nothing but grace and mercy and love for us. When we live our life trying to feel free we remember that Jesus has set us free and there's a day coming when we will live with him forever. See, banging on the glass and pumping quarters in and pursuing safety and power and comfort and pleasure is really about worship. And the only thing that can really meet us in our spiritual thirst is God himself because he gives us all of himself. Over and over in our life, we've looked to other things to fill us rather than building our lives around him. And Jesus is letting the conversation go to worship because that's what spiritual thirst is really all about. In verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This woman had met a thirsty man, not realizing how spiritually thirsty she was, but is now realizing that he's the very one who can meet her spiritual thirst. She, she thought she had met the prof, a prophet of God, not realizing that she was standing in front of the Messiah of God. There in front of her is the God-man who can quench spiritual thirst. All her life, she has been trying to get her claws on something that can fulfill her. And there is the son of God in front of her saying, I am here, I am for you. I'm the one who's the source of life. I see your story, I know your story, and I'm here to fill your empty soul. This wasn't a chance meeting. This was Jesus intentionally seeking 
the lost. It's so funny, it's almost like the imagery changes. We see kind of her banging on the glass of life going, give me, give me, I've got to get these things. The whole time not realizing that Jesus was standing right there, not inside the glasses, someone she had to get, but, but trying to get between her and the glass and showing, them, showing her that he is full of life and he's for her. There he is. As this woman, this scandalous woman, looks into the eyes of Jesus, the Messiah, streams of living water begin to rise up in her soul. She finds herself completely off balance by this meeting with Jesus, totally disoriented. And yet, as she looks into his eyes, she begins to be reoriented on him with new life welling up inside of her. She's being renovated right there as she talks with Jesus. In verse 27, just then the disciples arrived. I always feel like the disciples show up at like the wrong time. Guys, let this play out. They, they arrive and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Skip down to verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me I ever, everything I ever did. That living water that she encounters and that's welling up inside her, it changes everything. It doesn't just renovate like what she thinks about spirituality. Her encounter with Jesus takes her from being an ostracized mem member of the Samaritan community to, to actually bridging together Samaritans and Jews right there on the spot. She had been living her life hiding at noon in self-preservation and fearfulness, but her encounter with Jesus makes her self-forgetful. Rather than just trying to preserve herself, she's proclaiming Jesus. She's been trying to find meaning in life going from man to man to man to man. And then she meets one man who changes everything and fills her soul. Wells of water are springing up in her soul. The life of heaven is invading her heart, despite her past, despite her present, despite how desperately thirsty she was, Jesus meets her, disorients her, and renovates her. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian and you think that Christianity is about following a bunch of rules, think again. Christianity is about meeting the source of all of life. Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sins, the one who defeated death when he was resurrected, the one who ascended into heaven and now reigns in glory and he will come, day, he will come one day again to restore all things. And by his spirit, he comes to reign and rule in your life so that every morning you wake up. And I mean, I wake up a lot of mornings spiritually empty, but now I have a source. I have something I can go to in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of looking at how I was chasing after spiritually being quenched the day before. Jesus meets me every day. Christianity is not about uh, rules. It's about being renewed. It's about being renovated. It's about encountering a person. 
who disorients you by showing you how spiritually thirsty you really are and how you were banging on the glass of life trying to get success and approval and a career and power and sex and pleasure and drugs. But he says, you'll never get it, but I'll give it to you. I'll give you what you're looking for. I will quench your spiritual thirst. Verse 40 shows us how willing he is to quench our spiritual thirst. So when the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them, Jesus stayed there two days. Jesus was so willing to quench the spiritually thirsty people that he encountered that he moved in with the Samaritans for a couple days so that they could find new life in him. And he's here for you today so that you can find new life. So that whatever you're pursuing that's not fulfilling you, Jesus comes and says, find new life in me. Look at your life every morning. What are you pursuing? Is it really fulfilling you? Ultimately, it's empty. Unless you know Jesus Christ. Jesus never tires of filling spiritually thirsty people. And that's good news because as humans, we are spiritually thirsty. But Jesus is the one who meets us and quenches our soul. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcasts. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.